Good morning. Welcome to Sierra Bible Church, our 10.30 a.m. gathering. If uh, you're visiting or you're new here, we just want to welcome you. Thank you for, for coming. My name is Jesse and I'm part of the team here. Um, if you uh, don't have a Bible this morning, uh, we are actually, for those of you who've been with us for summer, we will conclude Jonah. Someone said they wouldn't believe it until it actually happened, but uh, we are going to conclude the book of Jonah this morning. Uh, and so if you want to just raise your hand, if you don't have a Bible, these guys would love to hand you one. And you can turn there to the book of Jonah, chapter 4, um, as I just kind of share a couple things that are important for us to, to highlight. One of them, which is a, a great um, point of praise, at least for our, term, our team here, we, we set out last uh, Easter, it became really apparent to us that, um, that we felt like God wanted us to start a children's uh, church program for our 8.30 a.m. gathering. So if you're at the 10.30 service, and you are, uh, welcome again. Uh, you, if you have kids, you know we have a children's program next door, and we haven't had that for the 8.30 service for quite a long time. And our plan was to launch one next Easter, which would have been April um, and uh, of 2019, but God has been super kind to us, and we're launching it in two weeks, uh, which is, yeah, great, great source of uh, praise, so those, so you'll be here at 8.30, those of you, right? So, um, the, um, and then I got a text message from our children's directors this week, because we we're going to make an, uh, an announcement for some help, because he said, hey, I think we need a couple more teachers, and, and then what he told me is he said, you won't, won't believe it, guess what, we're fully uh, we're fully stocked up on leaders, but you never hear a ministry do that or say that. So we have all we have right now the the teachers and the volunteers needed to make sure that that gets done. So that is really really cool, yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, and so so if you're here this morning and you would like to um, make room in this service by coming to the eight thirty service because you have kids, we want to encourage you to come. So part of the strategic move uh, is that. Um, that most of the time, not always, but most of the time, this, this service is pretty full. And we do believe the, in the gospel, and the gospel proclaims that people will be saved. So we still believe in 2018 and 2019 that Jesus is going to save people. Uh, and we believe that there are, I know this is a shock to, to most of you, there are people in Truckee, California who don't know Jesus. And we do believe that God is going to use us as a church to reach more people for Jesus. So if you don't believe that, start believing it. Uh, because we're, we're asking God to do that. And so um, the hope is, as more people come to the Lord, uh, we have some more room at the 830 service, and so we're, we're trying to make some more room at the 1030. Uh, and so again, if, if you have kids, and, and by God's grace, you're able to get those kids ready by 830, uh, we, we want to encourage you to come to the 830 service. And some of you say, I might be a little late, and I'd say, you are anyways, so it's okay. Um. And uh, so that, that, I'm really excited about that. Now, with that said, though, the other push that I've kind of made for our church as well is uh, the slogan, come to one and serve at one. And so we believe in Christianity that Christianity is not, if you become a Christian, that it is not a spectator sport. It, 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 Christianity is not meant to live on the sideline, uh, even on a Sunday. So we would hope that, after all, I'm doing it every week. I make, I make Sunday like a whole day gig, okay? I don't know if you know that or not, but I'm here pretty much all day Sunday. And, um, and so I would encourage you likewise, just, just, you know, I know you don't, aren't on staff or anything like that per se, but, you know, consider coming to a service and serving at a service because there are a lot of other areas that we have need in. And my guess is that many of you have felt this over the weeks. I actually had someone 
in the community share with me, you know that whole come to one, servant one thing you've been saying? Said, yeah. I go, well, I need to start serving somewhere. And then they asked me, where should I serve? The first question I ask when anyone asks that question is, first thing I ask is, where are you, what are you passionate about? What do you love? You know, we have food every, uh, every other week or so, first week, fourth week, I think, of Sundays. You like cooking food? Make us some food. We love food. Uh, you like kids? We need help with kids. You like techie stuff? We need help in the, in the back. You want to help do worship? I, I hear all the time of people in the church who play an instrument, and they're not using that instrument on a Sunday to glorify God, and some of them aren't picking up their instruments in a while. So we would encourage you to be part of the worship team. You want to help greet and smile? Are you one of those friendly faces out there? We need some friendly faces because we have some not-so-friendly faces. So uh, <laughs> I, see, I see Kevin over here shaking his head. I'm not a friendly face. So um, if you smile, man, you'd be amazed. People will like you, I promise. Um, <laughs> so we, we need service everywhere. But with that said, there's one particular place that we have a great need in, and that is uh, our nursery. And in fact, this morning I had a family here with two kids, and they weren't able to participate. The kids weren't in nursery because we didn't have volunteers in nursery. And so we do need help in nursery. Christy Rogelstad leads that. And so if you'd consider uh, serving there, it would be greatly appreciated. And, and I can tell you, uh, like for someone like my wife and for those of you who have babies, it, it is a tremendous blessing to be able to sit in uh, for an hour or an hour and a half or so on a Sunday and not worry about a crying baby, but to just be filled with God's grace and spirit so you can continue on for the rest of your week, right? Megan, Colin, you guys getting some sleep? Some? Yeah. Was that a question? Were you at? Yeah? Um, some days, yeah. So um, we want to bless parents that way. So please consider that. Uh, and, um, and then the fall, start paying attention to, you know, we're everywhere online. So we do have a website and Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're on all those stupid uh, social media platforms. And um, it's a great place to see what's going on. And fall is coming into season, so we're changing seasons. And all kinds of Bible studies and stuff are popping up. So make sure you stop at the community group page, see what kind of community groups are going on, because they're all starting to kick off. Uh, new studies are, are coming up. In fact, Brad Beers is going to be leading on Sunday nights starting the 16th at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday nights, uh, a class on spiritual disciplines. So if you're wondering how do you strategically go to the next level in your relationship with God, that would be a great place for you to participate in. If you've never heard Brad preach or teach, you'll be blessed by him. And then another new one that's coming up in addition to that is Rebecca Schroeder um, is going to be leading a series for women in their 20s in the Gospel of Mark. And so she, what's really neat about that is Rebecca has had this heart, she's said for a season, she'd like to teach a study to pour into the next kind of generation of group that's coming up. Uh, and so uh, if you're in your 20s and, and you're looking uh, to get poured into and discipled, Rebecca is your gal. And if you've not met Rebecca, I'm going to ask her to stand. Could you, could you stand for me? I know you're like, super. come on, that doesn't count. So, oh, yay. All right. <clears throat> See, I had you stand back there because if you stood up here, it makes me look really small and stuff. And I don't know. Um, so uh, that's a mouthful of stuff. But it's important. You know, we, we, we want to get you engaged. We want to help you grow in your relationship with God. Uh, and so this morning, as I shared, we're going to conclude Jonah 4. Someone texted me last night uh, instead of praying for you, praying you would end, end Jonah with a bang. And uh, I just said thank you. But the reality of Jonah 4 is that the conclusion of Jonah doesn't end with a bang. It doesn't end with an explanation point. In fact, it leaves us almost wondering what happened to Jonah. Uh, it, it leaves us with some questions. 
And the purpose of that is because the questions lead us to, to helping understand the heart of Jonah, but also our hearts as well. As we look into the mirror and we ask ourselves, what is it that God is teaching us through this rebellious or what some would call prodigal prophet? And this morning, if you would please honor the word of God as we stand for the reading of chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The salvation of Nineveh has occurred. And it reads in verse 4, Jonah's response. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city. He sat east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn had come up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on his head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also so much cattle? Again, Lord Jesus, we come to you on a Sunday, a day that many consider common, a day that passes by, maybe as the start of a week or as a reminder that Monday is coming. Nonetheless, Lord, for us, as Christians, those of us in the faith, we recognize that Sunday is more than just a common day. It is a day that God himself rose from the dead. It is a day that you have set apart for your people to gather together, to hear the preaching of your word, to gather together in worship, to experience your grace, and to share our faith with one another, to serve one another, to love one another, to be gathered together, Lord, to glorify your name and to lift it on high, to be reminded that life is not about all of its little trite promises, but it's about something more eternal something more promising, something more pressing. We ask that you would make yourself known to us in a miraculous way. Make yourself visible to us, if you will, Lord, inside of our hearts, making your love known to us, increasing our affection for you and decreasing our affections for the ways of the world. We trust you to do a great work amongst us, Lord, for you are God and we are your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> as we conclude the book, it's important to understand some of the, again, overarching themes in which exist within Jonah. In fact, this week, someone asked me the question, how we understand God's grace and his effective calling of grace in light of, of what's in chapter 3. If you remember in chapter 3, Jonah preaches the message that God told him to preach, which is a, mir a miracle in and of itself. Finally, after the word of God has come, quite possibly a third time, a second time verbally from God, a third being included in the sailors themselves telling Jonah to arise 
and go. But as he preaches that word, we see something miraculous occur. The people repent of their sins and turn to worship God himself. They sit in ashes. They put sackcloth upon themselves. They begin a fast where they, do no, they no longer eat or, or drink any water, and they seek God. And in that response, it says that God, because of what the people did, that God then saved them. And one asked me, well, how do we reconcile that in regards to God being sovereign in his grace? Really, the book of Jonah is one of the greatest, most clearest pictures of God's sovereignty in all of the Bible. If you remember, it started in the, in the very beginning of the book where Jonah runs, and upon running from God, he enters in his little body on a little boat and begins out into the sea, and God then prepares for Jonah a great violent storm. The preparation of God in the storm then leads to a preparation of a great fish. The word isn't used whale here. It's, it's something greater than that. This is a sea monster of sorts. We don't know if it's an actual scientific fish that existed in the ocean or if it was a fish that God purposely made just for Jonah. We're not told. Nonetheless, God produced it. Upon producing the fish, he tells that fish to swallow Jonah. Upon swallowing Jonah, I'm sure by God's command, it's inferred that, that he sits inside that fish for three days and three nights. At the conclusion of three days and three nights, God then commands the fish to vomit Jonah upon the dry land. After which Jonah finally responds in obedience, as you think one would after such disciplinary action. He then takes the 250-mile journey from the shores of Joppa to Nineveh, preaches the word that God calls him to for three days and three nights, and then God does the impossible. God brings, if you take the the small number of 120,000 people, a, uh, the conservative number, I should say. Many theologians believe that the 120,000 people is only referring to children, that it's not the entire city as a whole, that, that the, the larger number may be up to 600,000 people. Nonetheless, whether it's 120,000 or 600,000, there is a whole lot of people who begin their process in being saved. What a miracle. I have never heard of such a story of an entire city, let alone hundreds of thousands of people being saved. This is a miracle of God. This is God's affectious calling to an entire city, bringing them from an evil path to a more righteous path. God does an impossible work in saving them. But Jonah, however, is not someone who enjoys the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrians. So he goes outside the city like a a young boy who didn't like playing ball with his friends because of some stupid rule, and instead of working it out, he leaves, takes his ball with him. Jonah sits outside the city. He builds for himself an ineffective booth, shelter for the shade, most likely from rock and clay. As he sits outside of this city, he's hoping to see a mushroom cloud. He's hoping that God will bring disaster upon the Ninevites. We know that that isn't the case. And so as he sits outside the city, God then in his sovereignty produces a plant. He allows this plant to grow and it gives shade to Jonah. Take note of the radical experience, the kind of bipolar experience that exists within Jonah. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he was exceedingly angry. He's frustrated with God. Then in verse 6, once that plant covers his head, he's exceedingly glad. Do you see it? Uh, huh. This is good. 
At one moment, completely frustrated, the next, completely glad because God has produced for him this plant that brings him shade. Then God, in his sovereignty, not only produces the plant, he produces a worm. The worm devours the plant. Then God, in his sovereignty, sends a scorching east wind upon Jonah to the place where he grows faint, sunstroke. All the while, God is sovereign within this process. God is in control. Again, as we conclude Jonah, I think it's important for us to make the point, to make the mark, to highlight the reality that God is sovereign and in control in all of our lives. This for you and I should be completely good news. You are not in control of anything. Some of you control freaks are twitching at this point. What is that? But I thought I could. I thought if I just, if I do this and I do that, if I plan correctly, if I, if I put some kind of strategy together, I put a bullet point together, if I get up in the morning and have a to-do list, we know that God has a way of interrupting our lives, does he not? God is literally in control of everything. He's in control of the salvation of your children. He is in control of the salvation of your friends. He's been in control of your salvation from the beginning. You cannot earn God's love. It is a gift that God gives you. That is the message of Jonah. You cannot run from God because wherever you go, he will find you. We know Jonah probably went outside the city and ensured that he just stayed right outside that city and nowhere near the ocean again. Jonah, I think, knew that the reality was if he ran from God, God would hunt him down. If he went anywhere near the water to run again, God would swallow him again. He knew that God would send a whale after a whale after a whale after a whale all to just swallow Jonah up. And this reality of God's sovereignty the reality that God is gracious and he's kind and he's loving and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. This is not a point of praise for Jonah. This is a point of frustration and anger with God. He is mad. He knew God would save Nineveh. He knew God would bring them to salvation and it frustrated him. He was exceedingly angry. We ask the question, have you ever been angry with God? Have you ever been frustrated with the way that God has done things in your life? Well, then you're not too far from the heart of Jonah. Have you ever been maybe not angry at God or, or maybe to some degree angry with God that God has blessed somebody else that's not you? That God has done something great in someone else's life. And you wonder, why isn't he doing it in my life? Here's Jonah's problem. Part of Jonah's displeasure here is the title of the message. This is part two. Part of just Jonah's displeasure is that he had good theology but a bad heart. Do you notice it? Jonah, Jonah knew the word of God. Jonah was a student of the Bible. He knew that this was the very nature and the character of God. In fact, Jonah is, is declaring all the way back to Exodus chapter 34. When Moses is hidden within the cleft of the rock, it tells us in Exodus 34 verse 6 that God passed before him. And as God passed before Jonah, God declared his character, I'm sorry, to Moses. Saying to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is angry. 
for Jonah to hear. This is frustrating for Jonah to hear. He, he knows. He knows who God is. He knows the character of God. And he's upset about it. Can this just lead us to the point that all of your theology can be completely correct, but your heart could be completely way off? You may know truth. In fact, in fact, in Revelations, there is a proclamation that God makes to one of the churches. I know your heart. You have a great love. You, you, you don't put up with, with uh, heresy. You have all of these great things. And then he tells them, but you, you have left your first love. You don't love me like you should. So you have great truth. You know your Bible. You're exegetically sound. You enjoy good expository preaching. You may even attend the class on spiritual disciplines every week, which would be a miracle, right, Brad? And your heart could still be far from God. Isn't it interesting to note that you could be coming to church every week, every week, you could be serving every week, you could be reading your Bible every day, you may even be, be, be praying to God every day. That doesn't mean your heart is right. Here's a couple things we learn from Jonah. How his heart became if you will, to a degree, dark. Number one, Jonah allowed his hurt to become his hate. He allowed his hurt to become his hate. You see, the Assyrians, we've shared it before, were a violent people. They were an oppressive nation. They were not a, a place that you would go to visit. It, it, this is not Maui, my friends. This is not the Bahamas. This is the middle of the Middle East. This is the worst of the worst. It is dry heat. It is violent people. It is the place you go and you wear a bomb suit, if you will. This is the place that Jonah's been called to be a missionary. And he knew that they were a hurtful people. And instead of loving them, because he, if you remember, Jonah is to be made in the image of God. Jonah is, Jonah is a prophet. He's to be representing God. He, too, is to be merciful. He, too, is to be slow to anger. He, too, is to be abounding in steadfast love. This is what it is to be made in the image of God. Let's take note of something here. Jonah's displeasure. The plant grows up over him. And he is so stoked. He is in the shade. His, his physical faculties, if you will, are now getting some respite from the heat. But the reason that God dis, does this for Jonah is to point Jonah to a greater truth. He's showing Jonah, I provided this plant for you. I provided a covering for you. I am providing for you, Jonah. You're angry that I'm giving grace to a particular nation that doesn't deserve it, but you don't deserve my grace either. You're outside the city. You're complaining. You're whining. Here's a plant. I'm going to bless you. Someone asked me this morning, does God still bless us even if we're perpetually sinning? Do you know the answer? He does. He does. We like to make laws and rules about it. Well, you know, that guy, he's a real sinner, so he's going to suffer the consequences. And sometimes we often see they don't suffer the consequences because God is gracious and he's kind and he's slow to anger. Other times, God, like a good father, disciplines us, does he not? Sometimes he can't get away with anything. And then we wonder, well, well what's the rule? What's the rule? God is the father. God is the judge. Only he, he alone, knows when to dispense grace and when it's correct to do that and when he dispenses discipline. Only God knows. You know who doesn't know? You. You don't know. Yeah, but the Bible. God does things as God sees fit. And it's always true 
and it's always right. See, the plant pointed to something greater, that God himself in the gospel provides the covering for us as Christians. Do you remember in Genesis when Adam and Eve sin and they run from God? They do exactly what Jonah did. There's nowhere to go because they're still in the Garden of Eden. So they run and they hide because they now recognize that they are nude, they are naked, and they're filled with shame. God comes, asks where they are. He recognizes that they're filled with shame, and God provides for them their very first clothing, the very first sacrifice. They're then covered with some clothing that their shame would not be exposed. God himself provides the clothing for Adam and Eve. God provides the plant for Jonah. And for us as Christians, Jesus is our covering. He covers us. He is the plant, if you will, of Jonah. He covers us. He protects us. And and he's letting Jonah know, you cannot bring yourself your own comfort. Jonah is very displeased. He's very angry. And there will be no happiness to be had apart from God and his truth. We have to find that in Christ. Jesus is the covering for the Christian. When we feel naked and shamed, we hide ourselves in the cleft of Christ. When we feel anger, we hide ourselves in the cleft of Christ. When we feel that we are filled with sin, we hide ourselves in the cleft of Christ. He is the covering. He's the ultimate covering. And God's trying to teach Jonah this. You cannot find happiness apart from my provision. And yet he's still angry. He has allowed his hurt to become his hate. Which leads us to number two, part of the reason that his heart is dark. Jonah has allowed his preferences to become his prejudices. Jonah has allowed his preferences to become his prejudices. Anybody guilty of that? What do I mean? All of us have a particular preference. In fact, I think the heart is bent naturally. The heart is naturally bent towards trying to create people in our own image. This is really played out well if you're married. Yeah, I'm going to go there. I mean, it could be as little as, well, you know, you hang the toilet paper this way. This is my preference. If you hang it the other way, I don't like it. That's my prejudice. Why do you clean the dishes that way? Why do you squeeze the toothpaste that way? In fact, this week... My wife looked at me, and we were in a little bit of a, you know, a healthy dialogue. <laughs> and she just, you know, looked at me, and she said, I'm sorry, I'm not more like you. And I said, what was in my heart? Me too. <laughs> if you do premarital counseling with me, just know that I don't advise of that kind of thing. But it was in me. This is played out also, again, if you were a father or a mother, if my children would just do the things that I did. For my oldest, I love who he is. I've come to really adore his, his mind and his intellect. He is far more intellectual than I was at that, that age. He, he loves to read. And, and I'm over here as the old football guy going, why don't you like to play football? I'm going to go read. I can't relate to you. Talk to your mom. <laughs> we have a tendency to want to shape and mold, whether it's family or, or wife or any other relationship, into our own image. We literally make these things our, our prejudices. Why aren't you more like me? Now, you don't say it so boldly, but it exists in the back of your mind. If you don't play it out that way, it does get played out in church quite differently. 
doesn't it? And have you allowed your preferences to also become your prejudices? For instance, those are those of us, there are those of us in the room that we deeply appreciate the hymn. And we say to ourselves, this is the way that we're to sing to God. Hymns are the only way. And then others who say, it's the contemporary stuff that touches me. And then and there's this little conversation. Well, that contemporary stuff's all emotional. It's not grounded in truth. And, and then the person who loves contemporary is like, that stuff's all stoic and, and uptight and old. We've got to move on from it. Maybe you don't play it out in church, but you play it out in reality. This is why you can't just be someone who has an Apple iPhone, because this is number three. Anything that you idolize, you then demonize. Well, I like Apple phone, therefore I have to hate Samsung. This is played out in sports, is it not? Now, my father grew up in San Diego. So, I naturally became a San Diego Charger fan. And then they made the switch to L.A., which left me an orphan. (laughs) I had people ask the question, what are you going to do? Now's the time to jump, man. You have every excuse to leave the San Diego Chargers and become a fan of someone else. So I did, if I confess, it's going to sound stupid to many of you, but it makes perfect sense for someone like me. I went down the process of, well, what players do certain teams have? And even kind of leaning towards that, well, what uniforms do I like? What hat would I look good in? What jersey would I rock, you know? Even some of my friends who are Oakland Raider fans... Hey, man, here we go. You're demonizing, falling into my trap. Hey, man, silver and black, leave it behind. I grew up a Charger fan. You can't like Oakland. I'm also a Christian. (laughs) My job is to be truthful. You demonize. It's the worst in sports, but again, it plays out in church. Have you ever been guilty? As God asked the question to Jonah, do you do right to do well? Are you you sure you you have a right to be angry? In fact, this this is God's way in dealing with us as Christians oftentimes. We sometimes see God as this this guy who just wants to bring wrath when we do wrong or just discipline. And we forget the reality that oftentimes when we're doing something wrong and our emotions are off base, God doesn't necessarily judge us or even point a finger or make some kind of declaration. Instead, he asks a question, are you sure you have a right to be angry? If you don't believe me as far as this being a theme throughout Scripture, Adam and Eve in the garden, he asked the question, where are you? God knew where where they were. Cain murders Abel. Where is your brother and what have you done? Jesus asks Judah, you betray me with a kiss. Jesus asks Peter after the denials, do you love me? And Jesus asks Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? Do you know why he asks questions? Questions reveal to you your heart. And what's interesting about this is that Jonah, to some degree, I think he's blaming God for his circumstance and his situation. I'm angry because of you. Adam does the same thing in the garden, doesn't he? It was the woman you gave me. He's not blaming Eve, he's blaming God. 
Our natural tendency when, when the light is shined on our sin is to not take, take full responsibility for it, but to shove it off to the side, to say that it was caused by somebody else. I had a pastor many years ago tell me, he used this analogy. He said, let's say, Jesse, you have a cup of water. And what's in that cup is water. And he says, now let's say I come up and I shake that cup very violently. What's going to come out of that cup? Water. You're all very intelligent here this morning. No matter how hard you shake it, coffee won't come out, soda won't come out. It'll always be water 100% of the time. And then he used the, that, that analogy to tie circumstances and situations that make us angry, frustrated, depressed. Something has shaken your heart. Whatever your heart is shake, shaken, whatever comes out is what's in you. If anger comes out, it's because you're an angry person. If it's depression, it's because you have depression. If it's frustration, it's because you're normally easily frustrated. See, see, the reason he asks the question is because the heart gets shaken, and then he says, why? Why is your heart bothering you? See, God is the God who doesn't just deal with the fruit. He wants to get to the root. He wants to deal with the root causes of your frustration and your anger, and he's doing the same thing to Jonah. Jonah, Jonah, do you have a right to really be angry? He uses this analogy again with the plant. The plant grows, and then it dies because of the worm. And then Jonah's so, he goes from, again, the place of, if you notice, exceedingly angry to verse 6, exceedingly glad because of the plant, back to being angry again. You see the bipolar nature of Jonah here. There's no doubt in my mind somebody uh, in our day and age would give Jonah some kind of prescription drug. You apparently are suffering. Take this. Do you do well to be angry, he says, Jonah? He goes on, he says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did make it grow, but came into being in a night and passed in a night? See, he's, he's using this plant as an analogy for Jonah to understand something, that, that he would understand something in his heart in regards to what his view of people is. You see, God is letting Jonah know that I care for something greater than the plant. You care for the plant, I care for people, Jonah. You see, Jonah, you care about your, yourself. One of the idols of Jonah is the idol of self. See, in part, he's in this relationship with God for how God makes him feel. That's why he goes from exceedingly angry to exceedingly glad. I'm frustrated because God's not doing things my way. As soon as God brings comfort to me, now I am happy. Are you ever guilty of that? If you're not, if you don't think that you are, do me a favor today and just don't eat lunch and dinner. See how fast your attitude turns around 2 o'clock. Or maybe if I linger at the 1210, and I'm preaching at 1210. It's going to get busy down there. Squeeze in, man. You better hurry up. Donner Lake Kitchen's calling my name. You need to end this thing sooner than later. Right? The comfort of self. Most of us don't enjoy being in the presence of God. Why? Because God starts to dig deep into our hearts. Why? Because he loves you enough to try to actually make you really happy and not temporal, not temporary happy, not not filled with, with with the things that the earth promises. Take a bite of this, you'll be happy for a little while. Take a drink of that, you'll be happy for a little while. Watch a little bit of this, you'll be happy for a little while. God is not concerned with you being happy temporarily. 
He's concerned with your eternal happiness. And he's pointing this towards Jonah. Uh, You're concerned with something that just fades. It was there in one moment, and now it's not there the next moment. You're concerned with the plant. You care about the plant. And then he asks the question, should I not pity Nineveh? You know what he's saying? He's saying, I have labored over Nineveh. Jonah, you didn't labor over the plant. You did nothing, but I've labored over Nineveh. One pastor says, I've been skipping these things because it's just too hard in the moment to try to click a button. <clears throat> Here we need to see that our strong belief in the providence and sovereignty of God should give us a glimpse of God's pity for cities, or I would declare some place like Truckee, California and the Tahoe Basin. Cities are not autonomous. They do not grow without God. Even though the people in them may think that they are building a monument to human independence, they aren't. They depend on God at every, mi- at every minute, and not a single building in this city or in Truckee, California, was built without God's work. The waterworks, the sewer system, the electricity, the traffic plan, the government structure, the laws, the ordinances, the educational and cultural and technical entertainment institutions, they're all there because God's, because God's gifts and God's power and God's wisdom have been used. By extension, again, I would say Truckee is God's town. He has labored over it, and he has made it grow. Cities are not any more autonomous than people are. They live and move and have their being in God, and so God does not quickly or easily destroy the work of his hands. It's by way of us of understanding why has God not come and obliterated the world as it sits today. Because he's involved. My friends, for those of us who live and and breathe and try to make a living and try to buy homes in the Truckee, California area in the Tahoe Basin, do you believe that this is God's town? He owns it irregardless of its sin, irregardless of the ways that it turns its back on God. In fact, sometimes I get on the Tahoe Truckee page on Facebook just to get a reality of who's really living here. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, visit the page and just look at the ranting and the raving and the complaining and the whining. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And yet, God loves the people of Tahoe Truckee. We exist as a church to declare God's goodness and his glory. You are here in this town because God is sovereign and he's in control. He has a plan for you. Your plan is to point people to Jesus. If you think it's anything other than that, you've missed the point. The point is to elevate the great goodness in the name of who God is. It's to point people to the reality that there's something more than all the temporary stuff that God has out there. See, everybody in the world is complaining about the plant. And we're the ones who come and say there's a greater kingdom. There's a better place. There's a greater life. There's a happier, more joy-filled place to be. And we're not just talking about gathering together on a Sunday. This is where we are reminded to live for God, reminded to elevate the name of God. And so God isn't quick to destroy Nineveh. In fact, it's somewhat hilarious. You think of how the book ends. At some point, you read this, you go, should I not pity Nineveh? This is 120,000 people. Some think, again, that is just the youth. That's just the number of children in the city. That the number could go as high as 600,000 people saved within a 40-day period. But then at the end, this is the ending of Jonah. Remember, it's not a big bang. And the cows. (laughs) 
Come on. If you're any kind of Bible student, you should read that and look at what? What is he saying? He's tying into somewhat to the quote that I just read. God's invested in the town. He's helped it grow. Essentially what God is saying, listen, if I destroy all of these animals, what's that going to do to the market? What's that going to do for the people? These animals can be used for the people, for the goodness of God. There's a lot of good meat to be had there, Jonah. That's a lot of steak to just throw out. There's a lot of clothing there. And yet, in Jonah's mind, he was okay. He was okay with this reality of just obliterate it all. Because these people are not like me. I don't care so much about the people as much as I care about myself and my plan. And that dare I ever accept anybody different than me? See, Jonah, it ends with a question, and I think we too have to end with some questions. Some questions for us as a church. And you have to answer them, and your answer will reveal your heart. Here's one question. Are you willing for some to perish for your own preference? You know, in part, to be honest with you, part of the way that I pray and lead our church is twofold. God, how can you use me and my preparation time to disciple and mature people in the faith? And the second part of that is, God, what would you do strategically within Sierra Bible to bring people who do not know you, who are not like us, to salvation. And when someone asks the question, well, why do you do things this way or that way? The response is hopefully within those two filters. Well, one thing I've learned in leading, I've learned long enough, everybody has an opinion. Everybody's got a preference. Well, you know, if I did it, I'd do it this way. If I did it, I, I would do it this way. We have our preferences. But what if those preferences are keeping people from coming to Jesus Christ? What do we do with our preference then? What do we do when, when somebody comes to Jesus and, and they don't necessarily know how to read the Bible the way that you do? We've had this outreach next door to all of our Hispanic families. And you know what's happened since we've been doing that? The Hispanic families have been coming over to church here. And their view and their way that they treat our building and our facilities is a little bit differently than many of you who've come here for many years. They don't respect the facility as much as others do. And so then the proclamation comes up and people start saying, well, we've got to start making some rules. You know, next thing we've got to do, we've got to hang some signs. Don't do this and don't do that. You walk around all over the building, maybe you'll find a sign that says don't do this because signs work. If you don't believe me, just go to the stop sign up here, right into Sierra Meadows, and see how many people actually stop. And by stop, I mean, you know, ooh. One of the things that I've had to share as a reminder to our leadership as well as a reminder to myself, we've just spent a good deal of money and time next door to make next door beautiful. But you know what we're not supposed to do to next door? Treat it like a museum. We have new carpet. Don't bring coffee in here. No, man, that is a building for ministry. It's a building for discipleship. We're going to use and abuse the heck out of it. 
And then when it's time to redo it again, we'll redo it again because it's been used. May it be said of Cedar Bible Church, this place is used by people, sinners and saints alike. Are you with me? We're the beacon. We're hope. We're a city on a hill. You don't hide it. I've had to correct even some people within the church. Well, you know what those Hispanic kids are doing? I don't care what they're doing. They're here. You know how hard it is to get them here? They're here. You know how hard it is to get some of you here? You're here. We just celebrate. Say, man, it's a miracle. Jesus, thank you, God, for bringing people to church. Are you willing for some to perish because of your preference? Let's dig a little deeper. You parents who send your kids to public school, you okay with those who send them to private school or charter school? Those of you who are private school or homeschool parents, how do you feel about public school? You know what I say? Who cares? <laughs> no path necessarily leads to the one that you want it to. The book of Proverbs, if you read it, it's, it's, it's all about what's called truisms. You know what truisms are? If you train your child in the way, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise, that's a truism. I know Christian families who did exactly what Proverbs said and their kids walked away from God. Hey, I went to public school. I tell people, I tell people all the time when they first ask and they ask about the family and upbringing and all that, I said, my family was the family that like every church is praying for. We just pray for them to get saved. If they get saved, we'll believe God saves people. And then we get saved and I was like, well, I guess God's real. And then I end up becoming a pastor. Just last week, a gentleman in the church came up to me and said, I remember you as a young man. And all of us, whoever all of us is, said, we all thought you were going to prison. And I said, thank you for that. <laughs> God is again in control. What do you do when, when God sits someone next to you and they totally are completely different than you? Are you an emotional teeter-totter? One moment happy with God when he saves the people that you want saved. You invite the kind of people that you want in your community group. You invite the kind of people you want in your Bible study and your worship. You sit next to the people that you enjoy because it's easy to be hanging around people who are just like us, but God forbid that somebody comes around that we feel awkward around. What do we do with that? By the way, I'm still figuring it out. But the reality is that God desires us to be in relationship with people who are radically different than you. In fact, I would dare say that if you are going to be on mission for God, don't try to evangelize people like you. Go for the people who aren't anything like you. You know the ones you don't think God can save? In fact, there, there's a gal who came to church here, never been to church here before. Came for the very first time, not a Christian, doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. Has a pretty rough background. If I shared with you the things that they're involved in currently, you'd say, oh yeah, they need Jesus came for the very first time to church. And by accident, or by God's grace, I preached on everything that they were dealing with. Didn't know it. Their friend came to me and said, you have no idea what happened. I'm, I don't. And then they shared with me, and even I was like, oh, man, that's crazy. A few weeks later, she reaches out to her friend and says, hey, can you start sending me some sermons? I want to learn more. Man. And if, or should I say, when that person comes to Jesus Christ and they sit in this room, they will be different than some of you. But isn't this the great reality of Jesus Christ? 
that Jesus has a way of saving every single person. In fact, in fact, if I can find the quote here, this, was, this really kind of reminds us of a story in Luke chapter 15. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? It's really not titled correctly. It's about two prodigal sons. One that rejects God outright, and the other who tries to accept his father's love or earn his father's love through good actions. One quote reads this way. This story is about two reprobate sons. The younger brother is licentious. The older brother is self-righteous. The younger brother is a relativist. The older brother a legalist. The younger brother is irreligious. The older brother is religious. The younger brother is a slave to his own morality. The older brother to his moralism. The younger brother needs to repent of his scandalous sins. The older brother needs to repent of his damnable good deeds. The point? Both are in need of grace. The real problem is one knows it and the other is clueless. The older says to his father, look, dad, the younger brother deserves nothing. I deserve it all. How can you bless him? When in the story, if you look deep enough, both are in desperate need of God's grace and salvation. Is it possible all of your theology and all of your actions can be correct and you're still far from God? Yes. Is it possible that you're a drug addict or a porn addict or an alcoholic or a depressed maniac and you're in need of God's grace? Yes, that's the message of salvation. Neither one of them can earn their salvation. Neither one of them can come to Jesus Christ on their own power. They're in desperate need of God's intervention. And God takes both of those people, brings them on the same level, and says, you need me, nothing else. Here's the good news. If you're very rich and well put together and you look good, you need God and you're not better than anybody else. And if you're like me and you look back at your past and you look back at all the negative implications that you put yourself through or that have been caused to you and you think, I'm not worthy to be in a relationship with God, how dare you say that? Because God brings us all up to the same level. The alcoholic and the drug addict are in still of desperate need just as much so as the rich man and the well-put-together man. My friends, the ultimate question of Jonah is, do you understand your great need for God's grace? And have you been so impacted and so blown away by the book of Jonah, so in awe of God's ultimate grace, that inside there's nothing you can do except for share that with other people, that it has to come out, it has to bubble forth. Have you ever seen that video, That's My King? I wonder, do you know him? On occasion, there has to be this awe that surrounds us. And there's a few of you in this room that really get it, and you're like, yes, it's bubbling out. When I go to work tomorrow, I've got to tell people about Jesus. You ain't going to shut me up. I mean, I kind of long for a day, maybe wrongfully so. Or maybe a few of us get thrown in jail because we're so radical with our proclamation of salvation. Or you're fired from your job. Or a friend says, you know, I don't think I want to hang out with you anymore. You know, I have a group of buddies I played football with. I was tight with them in high school. And we're still friends now. You know, none of them invite me to their parties, though. None of them say, hey, man, I'd like you to come drink with us. I don't get invited to the same kind of events that they invite themselves to i'm in many ways isolated why because you don't invite a pastor to those pagan things and then when someone finally does man it is the best not because i'm diving into sin don't be thinking that 
Jesse can't wait to go get lit up. No. High number, 600,000 people saved. Low number, 120,000. I read this week that on any given weekend in the Tahoe Basin, 300,000 people visit us. They're all at Safeway. (laughs) Are you as readily to forgive as God is? There is such a great need for what we have in this room in the Tahoe Basin. Do you know that? You are a light on a hill in the dark place. We have people who worship trees here. Trees. You know, that's nothing new. That's an Old Testament thing. In fact, God says of those who worship wood, you will become as the wood is, deaf, blind, and dumb. Whatever you worship, you become. The reason we worship Jesus is because he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And he makes us in his image, new, every single day. You know, as we leave Jonah, it is hard for me in, in some ways to leave this book behind because it's been a good book for us. But the other part of that is all of the Bible is inspired. So as we move from Jonah into the book of James, God's still going to speak to us. Amen? Lord, as we close in song, We thank you that in your sovereignty you decided to use Jonah to minister to us. Forgive us, Lord, if we've come to the book in any way thinking that we are better than Jonah. Or saying things like, how could Jonah do that? Or why would Jonah do that? Rather, again, would you press upon our hearts that we are Jonah, we are Nineveh, and we're in need of your grace. Lord, as we move on from here, It is so common throughout the Bible to be reminded that one of our biggest problems is we forget your promises and your truth and your grace and your love. So as we leave here, Lord, I pray that you and your Holy Spirit, for this is part of the gift that you have given us, that you would remind us of who you are in your character, what you've taught us in this book, and that, Lord, we would be obedient in practicing that which you have called us to. Lord, there are so many areas of these uh, last few sermons that I could have spent more time in or feel as if I have fallen short in communicating the depth of some of the reality and truth that is in the book. And so in spite of that gap, Lord, I pray that you would close that chasm and you would fill it and you would truly mold us and shape us into your image, not into the image that we want each other to be in and not into the image of the world but molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. Unify us through that and that alone. We trust that you will complete this work you started in us. 
We look forward to the future and what it holds for us individually, within our families, and with our friends, but also as a church as a whole in the Tahoe Basin area. Use us, Lord, to bring people to salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.